Testament. Uh, so often people get it in their mind that there's like this God of the Old Testament who's full of wrath and anger and this God of the New Testament who's full of love and mercy. But the more you study scripture and the more you really invest in it, the more you see God's mercy is all over the Old Testament. And yes, there are moments of his anger and wrath towards uh, people who have said they're gonna you know, follow him and trust him and believe in him. But more often than not, there's so much grace and so much mercy and so many second and third and fourth and, you know, 600th chances. And so Jesus uh, wants to explain to uh, the disciples, not just the 12, but a whole bunch of people that have gathered around him. And he says he's not here to abolish the law. Rather, he's here to help us understand and interpret the law the way that it was meant to be from the beginning. And so I just want to clarify this because I don't want to assume that we all know these things. But the Old Testament laws that we find, and when I say the law, I generally am speaking kind of the Old Testament rules and regulations that you might find in various parts of it. The law was never meant to be a set of rules that we as humanity would be able to keep so that we could enter into heaven. Rather, the law was there to show us that we on our own weren't capable of that. And, and if you've had a child, you know how fast you see that, that sin nature that we're born with where we just want to do what's wrong. We want to disobey. We want to touch things that we shouldn't touch. And, and, and you as parents, uh, of, of, you know, think back to your toddler years, not your toddler years, your kids' toddler years, and, and all the rules that you put in place are for one thing, and what are they for? To protect your kids, right? You're trying to make sure that they know that if you do this, this is not going to end well for you. And I'm trying to spare you that pain or that hurt and And so God gives us the law partly so that we can see that, but also he gives us the law to show us that one day someone is going to come who does not have a sin nature. He's going to be called the Messiah, and he's going to come, and he's going to perfectly obey that law. And he's going to do everything that we could not, and because he he will do it, then he uniquely can stand as our mediator between God the Father and us. And so Jesus comes and he does that and he lives this perfect life and he sacrifices himself on the cross in place of us so that we might know that we now have a mediator. But Jesus wants to clarify, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do the things that God has called us to do. These are still good things. And in fact, as the New Testament goes on, Jesus teaches that the Holy Spirit is going to come and, and after the Gospels end, and if we enter into the book of Acts, we find out that the Spirit is going to equip us so that we are actually able to love God and to love people, which, which is Jesus' way of boiling all the laws down into two things. We're going to be equipped uniquely so that we can actually do that the way that God has called us to. Now, the problem is that we still fight this sin nature. And sometimes we give in to that and we do what's wrong. Sometimes we don't listen to the Holy Spirit and we choose our own way instead of God's way. But Jesus is trying to show us that that doesn't mean that somehow that nullifies his sacrifice for us on the cross. Just because you've struggled with sin in your life doesn't mean you no longer have a chance. The point is, as as Matthew 5 began and end, is that over time, as we submit to the Holy Spirit, we will become these types of people. So in the first few verses in the Beatitudes, it talks about we will become people that are merciful and that thirst for, or hunger and thirst for righteousness and and other things. And and then he goes back into some of the Old Testament at the end of chapter 5, talking about, you know, Let's just look at it real quickly here, just so I don't say it wrong. Is there's things about, you know, anger, and he says that it's all about your motivation. And being angry with someone is is no different in God's mind than murdering someone because you've assaulted their dignity and their character and the fact that they're created in the image of God. He talks about lust, and he says that, that again, your motivation is if you see something, and, and you can think people, adultery if you want, but you can also think coveting other things that you don't have, is if you desire that which is not yours and long for something other than what God has for you, then then Jesus says you're already guilty of committing like the worst of the worst in in the sense of like, if I look at somebody lustfully, I've committed adultery against Shelah. That's what Jesus is saying. He's trying to help us understand the reality in our hearts and expose our motivations and help us to see that it's not about obeying things religiously completely to get every little, you know, I dotted and T crossed so we can say, man, I've done enough. 
The point is for us to see, as we are given the Holy Spirit, this is the type of people that we are to be. People that honor our spouses. People that love our neighbor. People that care for those around us. And then last week, at the beginning of chapter 6, to be a Christian means that you will help those in need. And there's all kinds of ways in which we could do that. And we talked about that a little bit in those first four verses. But the thing that I want to point out to us is Jesus doesn't say, if you give, what does he say? When you give. That's very aggressive, Ryan. Thank you. I like that. When you give. And then he gives us an example. Don't do it so that other people see you. And we're going to clarify this again this morning because it's the same idea. Don't give so that other people see you because if that's your motivation for it, you'll get your reward. People will see you and they'll say, wow, good job. That person's very, very generous. But you won't have any eternal rewards. It'll only be done for the here and now. And Jesus' concern is far more than here and now in these few moments that we call our lifetime compared to all of eternity. Jesus' concern is that we enter into eternity with him. But not only that we enter into eternity with him, but that that changes how we live here and now for the years that we do have. And so this morning, we're going to look at verses 5 to 15 of chapter 6. And these are, uh, I was going to try and do 5 to 18, but for the sake of you all this morning, we're not going to do that. We're going to join 16, 17, 18 to next week. But he talks about giving last time and then prayer this time and fasting next time. And he uses just three examples. So don't think of these things as like, these are, the exhaustive list of what Jesus gave us. You just, you just have to do these three things. He's just giving us practical examples of what it means to be a Christian. So just like if you're a Christian, it means you will help the vulnerable. If you're a Christian, you will pray to the Lord. And, and so Jesus wants to clarify some of these things for us. But I just want to say one re- real quick thing here because I thought this was really interesting. As I was studying this section, one commentator made this point, is what do we know this section as? What do we typically call it? The Lord's Prayer. And, and he kind of argued that actually John 17, um, we call it the high priestly prayer in English, but, but that would be more the Lord's Prayer. This is actually the disciples' prayer. This is the disciples saying to Jesus, like, like how should we pray, is how the Gospel uh, of Luke writes it. How do we pray? They've seen Jesus pray and they go, we we want that. We want to have that intimate relationship with God. And so this is for you and I. This is not necessarily for Jesus. He was teaching this to you and I, that this is the Lord's prayer. So let's read these uh, verses starting in chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus says this. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask. Then if you know this, I want you to, to say it from memory or read along with it. It'll, if you have it memorized in a different translation, that's fine. But let's say this together. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And that end is a little direct. So we're going to deal with that in a few moments. But let's let's just kind of walk our way through this. Is is the Again, Jesus is dealing with our motivation. When we pray, are we praying so that other people hear us and see us? Are we praying so that others go, man, that person, they just, they are so eloquent with their words and with their thoughts. Are we praying as a response to, or or as a relationship to our Father in heaven? Are we praying to him or to others? 
But it's not only the motivation of it. He also teaches us kind of how to pray. Uh, Craig Blomberg writes it this way. He says, prayer ought not to be used to gain plaudits, summarize a sermon, or communicate information to an audience, but should reflect genuine conversation with God. Let me just clarify something as we move forward here. Because in verse 6, Jesus is going to say, when you pray, go into your room and, and pray in, in secret. But as you've seen already this morning, we, we pray corporately and we pray corporately a lot. And, and so are we going against what Jesus says? Well, no. Again, what we need to remind ourselves of is a lot of the stuff that Jesus is saying here, he's not literally trying to have us interpret it that way in that context. He's dealing with the generalities of our heart. And so when you pray, don't make it about other people. And so if you need to, then go into the door or go into your room and close the door so that nobody is there. If your heart longs to find approval from other people, then, then don't pray there. That's the point that he's trying to make us. He's going to pray in corporate himself lots of times. And so don't take that literally, but take that in the sense of he's trying to deal with our hearts and with improper motivations that exist there. And so he gives us two kind of warnings here. One, don't don't heap up uh, empty phrases as the Gentiles do. It's kind of an interesting expression, but in, in the cultural times of that day is a lot of the Gentile cultures believed that the more articulate you were with God, then God was more likely to answer your prayer, that the, the more words you used, that somehow he would hear you uh, above other people who weren't as eloquent or weren't as wordy as you. And again, again, Craig Keener this time puts it this way. He says, we pray not because we think our prayers earn God's favor, but as an expression of our trust in a father who already knows our need and merely waits for us to express our dependence upon him. So we don't need to explain to God the situation. God, I really need help in this moment, right? Because I'm not sure what to do with this or this situation has happened. God already knows all of that. And so we don't pray to him to try and convince him. I shouldn't say this. I think we do a lot. Pray to God to try and convince him why what we want is good and why we think we should get what we want. That's not prayer. That's manipulation, isn't it? And I think we're probably far too guilty of that from time to time in our lives where we see something, we go, I want that. And so if we pray and if we pray with really good words and we, and we try to pretend like we have good motives, that somehow God will honor and reward that. The truth is that God knows everything that you need. And according to Romans 8, you've heard me say this a million times, is God works for what? For the good of those who love him. The problem is our good, what we think our good is versus what God thinks our good is, or rather what God knows our good is, are two different things sometimes. Right? What do we typically pray for? We pray for health, probably pray for wealth sometimes. We pray for prosperity. We pray that God would uh, lead us into only good things and that we wouldn't have hardships and that we wouldn't have trials. Well, we're going to talk about this in a few moments, but our whole men's Bible study was based on the fact that God does lead us into trials and difficulties because he's trying to refine us. He's trying to show us that we need to trust in him. And if we don't learn to trust in him, we're not going to trust in him. And how do you learn to trust in God? We go through heartache. We go through pain. We go through hurt. And we recognize that what I think I want doesn't always lead to good things for me. So we don't want to heap up empty phrases. I told this story at a Bible study, but uh, for those of you who don't know me, I have super bad ADD. I know that's a shock. Um, and so I want to talk quickly and fast and get through stuff, and, and, uh, and, and I don't like awkward silence. Awkward silence is the worst. And then I married someone who likes silence, and, and she's probably had many, many a time where we're just sitting there, and she's probably having a great time, and I'm like, okay, let's talk about something. And she's probably thinking, we were having fun. What, what are you doing now? <laughs> This is just my temperament. And, and I remember being at Bible college, taking a course uh, in my fourth year in my internship, and the guy who was praying uh, was so intentional to realize he was talking to his king that he chose his words very slowly and very carefully, and I wanted to throw something at the window. Because he would pray a thought, and then he would stop. 
I would look up and I would be like, are we done? I didn't hear an amen, right? Like that's the code for when you're done your prayer. And then he would keep going and everyone would be, okay, head back down, right? Bow, right? And then I was so distracted for the first few days. Because in my mind, it was all about, I'd grown up in a very, you know, kind of religious setting. And I was used to like, we just know what to say and we have the right phrases to use. And, and none of that is true. Here was a man who just loved Jesus and wanted to talk to him. Wanted to lift that class that we were about to take up to God. That, that God would give wisdom, not him. That his words would not be his own, but they would be from the Father. And, and it drove me nuts until about halfway through, and I saw the simplicity and the beauty of his prayer life. And I, I, Shayla will attest this, I have a terrible memory. And we're not talking like bad, we're talking really bad. I don't remember a lot of stuff from Bible college days, but I remember him praying. Not because he used fancy words, but because he did the opposite. Because he recognized that he was talking to his king. And so don't, first we need to address our motives and not plan to pray so that others would hear us and think, man, we're really spiritual. Because all we're doing is then lying to ourselves and don't heap up empty phrases. These are the two warnings that Jesus gives before he then actually teaches us how to pray. And so I want to look at each of these lines because I think there's so much to learn in here, but the danger for us is that most of us, even Many of us who have never, uh, or many who have never placed their faith in Jesus, uh, who are, you know, older than my, no, my age too, but and older than myself, is the Lord's Prayer was just a normal part of life. How many of you remember praying it in school every day, right? It was a part of a lot of uh, North American culture for a long time, but when it becomes very familiar, we can lose sight of all the importance and all the significance that it has. And so, Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Have you ever really stopped at that point and thought about just those few words? Leon Morris uh, made it very clear to me as I was studying this. He said this simple little sentence. We should not miss the balance in the opening of this prayer. We address God intimately as Father but we immediately recognize his infinite greatness with the addition of in heaven. Simply put, he's saying this. We don't pray to some unknowable deity far off who has no relationship with us. We pray to a God who loves us desperately and wants to be in an intimate relationship with us closer than anybody else. But... We also don't pray to someone who's just our casual friend or, or our buddy. Is, as A.W. Tozer would say, is God is completely other. He is infinitely holy. And while we have a relationship with him, he is still the king of the universe and deserves honor and respect. And so we have those two things in one little sentence that remind us of who God truly is, but also who he is in relationship to us. I think for many evangelicals, we overlook that and we think that we take it for granted. That's just normal. But how many people in the world are, are seeking to worship a deity that they have no idea? Are they close to? Are they far away from? Are they getting his approval? Are they not? We have a God who loves us and wants to be in relationship with us. And so we call him Father. But we respect him. And then it says, hallowed be your name. This is not a common phrase, but the idea simply is that we keep God's name as holy and we treat it with reverence. I think this is a really big challenge for us in today's world. Most people that, that I come across, and I'm sure that you come across as well, are far more likely to use God's word as a curse word than a word that's honoring. But rather, we know and we see that to be wrong, if, if we adhere to scripture, but what, what the bigger danger in my mind is this, is how, me, how casual we are with God's name. There's an expression that is used all the time around us, and, and many Christians use this, and we've probably all been guilty from this from time to time. 
This is one of my pet peeves, and so, so I'm not trying to point the finger at anybody. What I'm trying to say is, is my mother and father ingrained this in me. I don't know if they got this from this prayer or just the concept in general, but we use this phrase so often and with such irreverence, we go, oh my God. Now, I'm not trying to say that if you use that phrase that that means you don't love Jesus. Don't hear me saying that. But what I do think it means is we forget just how influenced by a secular culture we are and how casual we've started to take some of the things of Scripture. In Exodus 20, verse 7, it says this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes takes his name in vain. It was a serious thing. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project uh, talked about this exact verse in this sense. He says there's an expression that we should think of or, or a word picture that we should use. And he says it's carrying the name of God. We carry his name when we talk about him. And so do we use his name flippantly and, and, or maybe even as a curse word? Or do we recognize that in his name there is holiness and goodness and we don't want to be flippant, but we want to have reverence about how we talk about our God? I think the world will see very clearly the words that we choose to use and not use when we say, I want to hold his name high. Again, we might think, man, this is such a little normal thing. It's just, it's just a cultural thing. It's no problem. Well, just like Ernie said at the beginning, just because the majority does something doesn't make it right. In fact, in Old Testament times, when a, when a scribe was writing through and they came to the name Yahweh, which is, which is the Hebrew word for Lord, we have it uh, L-O-R-D in all capitals in the Old Testament, is they, they would go through immense cleaning procedures at that point. They wouldn't speak it out loud. They would get a new pen. They would change their clothes, and then they would start with that. Now, you could think, man, that's, we don't need to do that. That's very kind of legalistic. And, and if that's our motivation, then yes, we shouldn't do that. But the motivation should be in recognizing that his name is holy, and we want to carry his name with honor. We are Christ's ambassadors here on the earth, and how we represent him to a watching world might be the only way that they know how to interpret who Christ is. So we want to carry that name well. And he says, your king, your kingdom come, and your will be done. So what does it mean for your kingdom to come? We sang it in a couple of songs this morning. And I think sometimes we think of it only in in a future sense, where we think we're talking about the second coming of Christ. And certainly there's an aspect of that. We'll call it realized eschatology. It's an already but not yet type of idea. So when we say your kingdom come, well, God's kingdom has come already, hasn't it? In the form of who? Actually, the church, right? He's come and he's given us the spirit so that his kingdom can come and permeate society. And so it partially is already here, but there's also this future sense of when Christ comes again, his kingdom will, he will come and actually reign and rule. And there will be, you know, we we say this all the time, no more sadness, no more tears, no more hurt, no more pain, all these things. So there's an already that the kingdom is here and that you and I as the church have purpose and meaning. And we're called to bring that name to the world, but also a sense of it's not yet fully realized. And so we long for and wait for that day when all wrongs will be righted. Your your will be done. Another kind of expression that this one probably we know a lot more uh, is simply is this, is God's perfect will. Your will be done where? What does it say? On earth as it is in heaven. Right? So there's this word picture that where God is is completely holy and that there's no sin there in his presence and that's his will. We read in scripture in uh, Timothy and Peter that it's God's desire that all would come to know him and that all would be in relationship with him. That's what God's will is. And so we pray for that perfect will of God to be done on earth just like it is in heaven. That's what we pray for here. Now we also understand there's a realized eschatology in that too. Because right now, do we see that? Do we see all things in submission to Christ? No. We see chaos reigning and we see fighting and we see hate and violence and anger and racism and all 
you fill in the blank with whatever you want. But this is the mission of the church, isn't it? To present to the world that there's a better way to live. And that through submission to God that we can show others what it means to love God and to love people. And so we pray for God's will to be done. But that doesn't mean that we passively sit by and say, okay, God, do your will. What are we actually praying? Let us do your will. We as the church. So what can we do to bring God's kingdom to the earth? Well, obviously, we need to share the name of Christ. We need to disciple one another. We need to love and care for those. We need to give. We need to pray. There's so many examples that we can look at. But to follow Jesus doesn't, isn't, an, or isn't a passive thing. It's an active idea that we go out and do. In verses 11 and 12, actually 11, 12, and 13, he kind of flips it. Now he's going to talk about some practical needs. And so he says, give us our daily bread. Now, worried about asking this question, but we're going to try. I really hope we get it right. When you see that expression, give us our daily bread, what should we think of? What should our minds go back to? The Exodus, right? God's people have been brought out of slavery in Egypt and are, are supposed to be entering into the promised land, but, but through their own disobedience, they don't. And, and they cry out to God and they go, there's no food out here. We have nothing to survive on. You've brought us out here to kill us. And basically, God goes, man, you just have no idea who I am. And so he provides something for the people. And what is that something? He provides manna for them, which is literally one day's worth of food. And God says to them through Moses, he says, okay, this stuff's going to fall from the sky. You're going to take it and you're going to collect it for the day and you're going to eat it. But you don't need to collect more because tomorrow I'm going to do the same. And so what do you have? You have some people who trust God and go and collect and they eat it and then they wait with anticipation. Is God going to be faithful to do his promises again tomorrow? And he does. But you have some that go, well, we can't trust that with God, so let's, let's get extra and we'll store it up. This is a good Mennonite plan too, right? Store it up, make sure we have extra, and what happens to it all? They wake up in the morning and it's rotted. Because God's point was you trust in me for your daily sustenance now. And so while that context may be different for us, this phrase of daily bread, we should remind ourselves that what we have is not because we worked for it, because it's a, but rather because it's a gift of God that he has given to us. Leon Morris again says it this way. He says, this word give recognizes that our basic food is not the result of our unaided endeavor. It is the gift of God. I actually think sometimes living in a culture like ours that is affluent as we are and as self-sufficient as we are that we actually don't get to learn some of these lessons very well. I think it would be good for us to trust in God for our daily bread where we don't know where our next meal is coming from and watch the provision of the Lord. Don't hear me wrong. That's not to say if you just go out and sell everything you own and you have no money at all and you just sit there that God's going to magically rain manna down on you. That's not the point. The point is, are we taking credit for everything in our life or are we recognizing that God has his sovereign hand on top of us and is a good father who wants to bless us and give us good things? I hear this expression all the time where people say, I have worked so hard for this. I deserve it. But what makes us any different than somebody who had to walk five, ten miles to go find clean water and put it in a jar on their head and walked all the way back through the heat of the day so that their family can simply have a drink? Have they worked less than you? Do they deserve less than you? It's not our unaided endeavor. It is the gift of God. Verse 12, he says, forgive, uh, he's teaching us how to pray this, right? So Jesus is not praying this for himself, just to be clear. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, 
Again, I want to be real clear here so that this isn't confused. Your sin and my sin was paid for on the cross with Jesus' blood. When we come to faith in Jesus and we accept Christ's gift of salvation for us, then we now stand positionally clean or sanctified before God. But I have had so many people uh, and teachers and pastors that I've heard that use this as some kind of a scapegoat to say they no longer need to ask for God's forgiveness because he's already provided it on the cross. So I want to be very clear here. Positionally, if you have accepted Christ's gift of salvation on the cross, then you are clean. But there's an ongoing reality of our sanctification that we call progressive sanctification. That is, are we walking in step with Christ? Yes, you've been forgiven, but when you do something that dishonors Christ or that hurts him, don't we need to deal with that and make recompense for it? Not in the sense of earning our salvation back. Salvation was a gift given by Jesus. But relationally speaking, think of it this way. Is, is Shayla is a very patient woman and has promised me that she will always forgive me. And I know that. And I know she's going to do that. So the next time I do something wrong, that doesn't mean I, need to, I don't need to ask for forgiveness, right? How, how healthy would that relationship look? Right? If I just, she's going to forgive me. I know she will. I said something stupid. I did something stupid. It's okay. She's going to forgive me. And I just never deal with it. Where does that relationship end? At what point does, do I push her so far away from me because I'm not taking ownership for what I've done that that relationship is broken? When we wrong God, we come before him and we repent, not because we need salvation again, but because we want to be in step with the Spirit. We want to be progressively sanctified. We want to be coming more like Jesus. And so we pray to God and we say, forgive us our debts as we recognize all the ways in which we have hurt God. And then we pray that God would give us the strength through the Holy Spirit to do what is right, and so that we would honor him. Now, friends, this is, a, this is not something I've figured out how to do all the time, and it's not something that any of us will. The point is not to look at this and go, well, I can never be perfect, so I guess I'll just give up. The point is that we can grow and we can mature. And just like if you have a good, healthy relationship with your spouse, that over the years you learn when it's, oh, man, i got to apologize for that right away. I said this thing, I did this thing. And I want to fix it immediately because I don't want my partner to go through that pain or that hurt. We begin to care more about them and less about ourselves. That's what relationship looks like. And that's what maturity and relationship with Jesus looks like too. But then he also says, as we have forgiven our debtors. Notice the implication in there. What is Jesus assuming? That you will forgive those who wrong you. Right? Not that, well, we probably should. It's no, we will do that. Craig Blomberg says, spiritual debt to God, or, or spiritual debts, excuse me, to God are first of all in view. Our plea for continued forgiveness as believers, requesting the restoration of fellowship with God following the alienation that sin produces, is predicated, listen to this, is predicated on our having forgiven those who have sinned against us. Verse 15 stresses, and we'll talk about it in a minute, without this interpersonal reconciliation on the human level, neither can, be, neither can we be reconciled to God. I'll clarify that in just a moment. Verse 13, he says, lead us not into temptation. Like I said, this is our whole men's study, was this one word and trying to define and talk about this, what does this mean? Well, according to James 1.13, which is where we were, is that God tempts nobody. But God does bring us testing. He is refining us. But temptation comes either from one of two places, either from Satan himself or from our own sinful desires. Temptation's purpose is that we would fall and that we would doubt and that we would say, I want to redefine good and evil on my terms, not on God's. 
Again, Morris says it this way, God tempts no one, but the worshiper knows his own weakness and in this prayer seeks to be kept far from anything that may bring him to sin. That's a wonderful statement. I want to read that one more time. If I can find it now in my notes. God tempts no one, but the worshiper knows his own weakness and in this prayer seeks to be kept far from anything that may bring him near to sin. God doesn't lead us down the road of sin. He does refine us and he does put unique circumstances in our way so that we learn how to trust him more. But the motivation behind all of that is that our growth and our trust in God would increase. But we know our own hearts and we know what tempts us and we know the things. And for each of us, it might be different. Some of us might be tempted by power or control. Some of us may be tempted by sexuality. Some of us may be tempted by money. Some of us may be tempted by prestige. You know, fill, the, fill in the blank. Usually there's one or two of those things that each of us really, we know that that's where we end up falling so often. And so our prayer is not, not God, don't, don't let that happen to me. It's God, don't let me walk in that direction, but take me away from there. Help me to walk and run after you and not my own heart. Then he also says this, deliver us from evil. Rescue us from the power of Satan. There's argument, there's debate here in this verse, and some of you will have a little footnote at the end of evil in your translation that says, or the evil one. And and the question is, is this evil generally speaking, or is this only Satan and his kind of threat to us? And, And I think the answer is simply yes, both and. In its context, it seems to be more general, but we would be remiss to think and forget that Satan's goal is that we would fall and not trust the Lord. And so we pray for that. Now, before we hit verse 14 and 15, if you were going to do the Lord's Prayer, and we did this uh, at the chapel service, because again, so many of those older people, right, like some of them can't even speak very well, and yet they can pray this prayer. It's amazing. What do we end this prayer usually with? Does it end here, but deliver us from evil? Or what do we usually say? Now there's pressure, right? For thine is the kingdom. Yeah. Forever and ever, amen. So we know that right now, again, you'll probably have a little footnote, uh, many of your translations, uh, pointing this out, is that little, we call it a doxology at the end, is not in the original manuscripts. And so if you have a good, faithful English translation, uh, it won't have it in there. But you will have the footnote reminding you that there was this doxology. It appeared later on, probably added by scribes later. And so the question then people ask is this like, so should I pray that bit at the end or should I not pray that bit at the end? Well, let me just say it real simple. If it's true and if it's good and if it's right, should we pray it? Yeah. Now, God, Jesus here is giving us direction, but he's not saying this is the prayer that you pray every day and you pray no other way. Jesus is giving us an example. We, we, we start prayer with recognizing his glory and his goodness and yet his relationship with us. We acknowledge that we want his kingdom to come and we're seeking his will, not our own. And then we deal with our own hearts and the things that we need and recognize that this all comes from God, not me. He's giving us a structure of how to pray, not exactly this is the only way to pray. And so if in your tradition that you've grown up and you like to add that doxology at the end, you're praying nothing wrong. So feel free to do that. But I think it is important to recognize uh, because people might ask this and go, well, you know, that, that Lord's Prayer that you say, that last little bit, that's not in the Bible anymore. So, so it's got to be contradictory. And I think we can very easily look back and we can go, actually, in the early manuscripts, it wasn't there to begin with. And I don't think it's a problem to say that scribes later added that doxology at the end of that prayer because it's all true and right and sums up what's in there. So I don't see any contradiction there. But I just want to clarify that for you if you ever go, where is that bit in the Bible? You won't find it, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. He then says, okay, now this is we're going back to. So he said in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. But then he doubles down on this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father uh, forgive your trespasses. Now again, 
if we interpret everything in Scripture as completely literal, we lose sight of the very reason that Jesus is talking. And so I've heard, and there's this big debate in some theological circles about this saying, well, you actually have control on whether God forgives you or not based on how you live. Let me just say this. You have no control. God alone is in control. Jesus is not saying that, man, if you don't forgive someone, that then, then God is now bound to not forgive you. He's trying to make a principle, a realization for us, an understanding that Here's how Keener puts it. No matter how individualistic our culture or our own intimacy with God, it, pardon me, let me re-say that. No matter how individualistic, oh, guys, one more time. No matter how individualistic our culture, our own intimacy with God must lead to prayer for an active commitment to the needs of all of his people. That's the point of this. And so when we pray to God, if we are unwilling to forgive our neighbor who has wronged us, then why would we stand before a holy king and say, but, but please forgive me? Does that make sense? How can we ask for something that we're not willing to do? That doesn't mean that we're saying it's not hard. Right? And, and there's, a, there's a key difference here. It's not as though every time someone wrongs us as Christians, we just go, oh, it's fine, it's no big deal. There will be devastating results for some of the things that people have done against you. And there will be moments where you don't know how to forgive and you don't know how to, how to move on from that trauma or that hurt or that pain. The point is that as we understand God's forgiveness through the Holy Spirit supernaturally, we will learn to forgive others in that same light. That's a high calling. That's hard. But that's the point of what we're learning about what it means to follow Jesus. We don't do this in our own strength. We do it because he has equipped us. He has taught us. He has given us. This is what it means to be someone who is gracious and who forgives. And so when we sit there and we go, man, I can't forgive this person then we need to go back to Scripture and see that while we were, this is Romans 8 again, while we were enemies of God, what? Christ died for us. I say this all the time when I do weddings, is love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. Maybe I should say it differently. Love is a feeling, but more importantly, it's a choice. Are we going to choose that and remember back to the fact that because of Christ's forgiveness for me, I want to offer that forgiveness to others. It doesn't mean that it's just dealt with and we move on. There's, there's a process to that. And we have to deal with those things. And so I don't want us to think that somehow this is easy. But what I do want us to see is that Jesus is saying, you cannot go to the king of heaven and ask for and plead for mercy from him when you are unwilling to give mercy yourself. This is a two-way street. So when we pray, and we're going to do this in just a moment, but when we pray, don't just pray this prayer in a word for word with no correct motivation, but recognize what Jesus is doing. He's teaching us that we would understand the bigness of God and yet the nearness of God. The holiness of his name and that his purposes or that his kingdom will come and that others will be brought into this kingdom so that his will could be done. And that when we think of our daily needs, that we recognize that all of it is in God's hands and it's not my unaided efforts that get me what I think I need. And then we end with a reminder that I need to constantly go before God and ask for a right relationship with him. And then that God would grant me the grace and mercy to offer and extend that right relationship to those who have wronged me. And then lastly, to remind ourselves that what I think I want is sometimes very wrong and very bad. And my prayer would be that God would lead me in a completely different direction. So I want to pray with and, and for us here this morning in this type of a prayer. And, and, and we're not going to recite this again. I'm simply going to ask for these things in various ways for all of us. Yeah, it's corporate prayer, but this is not me praying on behalf of you. This is me praying my heart's desires and I hope that based on what scripture has taught us here, that these are your heart's desires too. So let's pray. God, as we consider the bigness of our world, 
And as we think about the universe, as we think about planets and galaxies and just the infinite space that is out there, it's hard to even fathom that you created that with your word. And yet when you created us, you didn't just set the clock and walk away, but you actively wanted to be in relationship with us. And so God, I confess that there's nothing that I have to offer you that you don't already have. But I know from Scripture that you want to be in relationship with us. You want to love us and care for us. You want to lead us and guide us. And ultimately, you want us to be your ambassadors that others would see and understand who Jesus is. So God, would you give each one of us the courage to live for you? In in how we talk, in how we act, that what we do would be not for our own motivation or, or, or so that other people see us, but that so you receive honor and glory. God, we eagerly await the coming of Jesus again, the second coming. We can't wait for you to come and to rule and for all wrongs to be righted. And we know that you're going to do that one day, but until that day, would would we remember that we have purpose and calling as well? That we are to be your agents of redemption along that journey. So give us the words to say. Put people in our paths this week that we can love and that we can share who you are with them. God, we long, as, as it says in Scripture, that you long for all to come to faith in you. That's our heart's desire, too. And so, God, this morning, I think of all my family and my friends that don't know you. I pray that they would. I pray that through whoever and however it takes that you would make yourself very real to them, that they would not be able to ignore you and that they would come to faith in Christ. God, for my own life and and for all of our own lives, we acknowledge that everything that we have is a gift given by you. And so help us to not take credit for everything, thinking that we can do it all on our own, but help us to constantly, like the people in Exodus, help us to constantly look to you for our daily needs. When we eat a snack or when we go home and have a meal or when we go out with somebody for coffee, may we remember the tremendous gifts that you have given us in that way. May we learn to trust on you for everything that we need. And God, would you be at work in our hearts and as we seek to honor you when we do fall and when we make mistakes, when we choose our own way instead of yours, God, would you make that clear to us and would we repent of those things? Would we seek your forgiveness, not because you were unwilling to give it, but because we want to be relationally restored to you? And give us the strength and the courage to forgive those who have wronged us. And as we walk out these doors today, as we walk into a very uncertain life in front of us, where we don't know what's going to happen or who we're going to come in contact with, one thing we do know is that temptation is everywhere. And so I pray for my own heart and for all of our hearts that we would long to run after you. Those things that tempt us, would we walk away from them and run towards you? God, you are a wonderful God. And you love us and care for us so much, far more than we could ever understand. May we become people who have intimate prayer lives with you, not because we're trying to get something, but because we love you. 
So grow our hearts, grow our relationships with you. Grow us into the type of people that you have created us to be. God, thank you for each one who is here this morning. You, you know each of their needs this morning, and so I pray that you would meet those needs in whatever way that you see fit. God, we love you. Go with us today and be with us throughout this week. Amen. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Uh, again, if you're visiting, uh, please come talk to us if you have any questions or uh, want to know anything about the community or where you should eat or whatever, anything. We'd love to help you with that. Uh, Petra, come here. You may not know Petra, some of you. Uh, Petra's been living with us for a few months now. Um, and I'm going to tell the story. Petra emailed the church and asked, hey, is there anybody in the church that, uh, that I could live with for, for the months that she was here? She didn't want to kind of live on her own, but wanted to invest in faith community. And, uh, and Shayla and I had just had someone living with us, and we had just gotten uh, kind of the basement free again, so to speak. And so we're like, no, we're not doing that. But we should have her over for lunch after church. So the first Sunday she was here, we invited her over. She left, and Shayla and I looked at each other and went, all right, she can live with us. And so she moved in, and she has probably been more involved than anybody I've known for such a short period of time in our church. She's been part of the ladies' Bible studies, the young adult Bible studies. She's taken people for coffee. She's all over the place. And today's her last Sunday with us. On Tuesday, we drive her back to the airport, and she's going back to Slovenia. Uh, And so we just wanted to invite you up here, and we're going to just pray a blessing on you. Thank you for all that you've done for our church, and we just want to pray for safety for her. So let's stand together, and we'll just pray real quick for her. God, thank you for Petra and for her faith in you and her desire to walk in obedience. God, she has been a blessing to our church, and I, and I pray that in some way that we have encouraged and discipled her in these few months. As she goes home, would she be a living light for Jesus? Would others see the faith that she has, and, and would it just change all those around her? We thank you for bringing her to us for these moments. And as she goes back home, we pray for safety. And for whatever you have next for her, we pray your blessing on her now. Amen. Thanks, Petra. Yes. Just talk loud. Now, real quick, Petra made all these snacks and was up till like four in the morning. No, that's not quite true. But, but she worked real hard for this, so come uh, have snacks with us, visit with us, and uh, yeah, have a wonderful week, everyone. Take care.